Welcome to the Mama Needs a Moment podcast. We're your hosts, Chrissy and Cindy, co-founders of Her Health Collective. We are two moms obsessed with revolutionizing the way moms take care of themselves. Every other week, we dive into the topics that matter to moms most, answering your most pressing questions as we learn from top-notch experts, swap stories, tap into our creative sides, and advocate for the causes that moms truly care about, all while hanging with your mom friends. We're so glad you're here. Let's dive in. Today, we have the pleasure of hearing from Dr. Maria Paredes. Dr. Paredes has nearly 20 years of experience in the mental health field. She's a licensed professional counselor and supervisor and a certified eating disorder specialist supervisor that uses an eclectic approach when working with her clients. Dr. Paredes is trained in brain spotting and EMDR, which I find so fascinating. And we had the pleasure of learning a bit more about these treatment protocols in our conversation with Dr. Paredes today. In this episode, we dive into everything from the anxiety so many mothers feel to the need for more fathers to utilize mental health treatments, from helping children grow resilience to taking back your own narrative in life. We discuss navigating traumatic situations, what recovery from an eating disorder may look like, and the role of society's gender roles in parenting. This episode packs in so much information. So pull up a chair. Let's dive in. We are so thrilled to be here with you today, Dr. Paredes. We always dive in with some get to know you questions. We have found that often our moms and our listeners hold experts up on kind of a pedestal. And we just really like to make our experts very relatable and have our moms kind of get to know you in a way. So we're going to just dive right in. Our first question is a fill in the blank. Motherhood is really, 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 really hard, (laughs) but also such a gift. As someone who like experienced infertility and pregnancy loss and always wanted to be a mother, like even when it's the hardest, it's something that I tried to remember, like including because we see clients who've gone through that same stuff and are so, so yearning to be able to be a mother. I tried to remind myself that it is a gift, even when my kids are, you know, driving me nuts. It, it is so important to remember that. And I imagine working in the mental health community and dealing with these types of issues regularly, it is something that kind of crops up regularly for yourself. So, and I would, might've added one more really, (laughs) it's really, really hard. Yes. (laughs) Yes. 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 Well, and y'all know this, like I've had this conversation with a lot of mom friends that when we signed up for this, we did not sign up knowing there would be a pandemic, you know, and all that. So that has definitely added a whole nother level of hard to it. Absolutely. I was actually sitting with that the other day. Like, this is not how I pictured my motherhood journey (laughs) at all. What do you value most in a friendship? So I have learned to value different things from different friendships. I think when I was younger, I, I don't want to call it a mistake, but I think I, I hoped for every friendship to like offer everything. Right. And Mm -hmm it's been a really good lesson to be able to realize I'm not going to get everything from every friendship and that's okay. And so I love the friends I can go super deep with. And then I love the friends, 
you know, I don't want to say that they're surface friends, but where it's just maybe less deep or focused on a particular interest, right? right? Like friends I run with, but maybe we don't go that deep, but, but we really enjoy, you know, bonding over that or whatever. And that has helped me, I feel like, to have friendship resilience, if that makes sense, in terms of not feeling as let down when I'm not able to get everything from a singular friendship. Absolutely. Do you know, I received a very similar piece of wisdom from Mm -hmm. a very trusted friend when I was a teacher, she worked in the media center and she was kind of like a mother figure to me. Mm. And I was in a really tough place with making friends. I had just moved to the area and I was looking for that one deep connection that would serve and be everything. And you are absolutely right. That was exactly what she said. It was specifically, you know, the friend you play basketball with, which I can't throw a basketball to save my life. It was just her example, but (laughs) you know, the friend you play basketball with, it doesn't necessarily have to be the friend that you go out and have coffee with and they serve different functions and different purposes. And that has sat with me ever since, Mm -hmm, especially mm -hmm. as an adult. Yeah. It's, you have to acknowledge that different friends serve different purposes. So yeah, it's something that I've been trying to talk with my kiddos about, because I think this concept of a best friend, I think we learn it growing up. And I think sometimes it can like hurt our expectations because we think we're supposed to have this one best friend that is everything. And I think some people do have that, but for a lot of us, I think we have a lot of different friends that maybe offer different things. So, and that's okay. Yeah. Unless you're my four-year-old who comes in every day. This is my best friend. Yeah. Right. She's my best friend. <laughs> yeah. Right. What is the most daring thing you've ever done? I had a couple of thoughts with this one, like hoped, like continue hope, hoping when I felt despair, continuing to dare to keep going and trying even when it felt hopeless. You know, I, I also, the other thing that came to mind was, and you know, I, I always want to protect my kids' privacy as far as their stories, but you know our stories are intertwined. Making decisions about my children's mental health and doing things that were really hard and that felt like the right thing, but also like, oof, I can't believe we're doing this. But yeah, and so I think mothers make daring choices all the time that aren't necessarily like sexy, you know, or like super exciting. But you know, sometimes it's like the small decisions we're making for our kids that are really daring and no one's there to clap or to say good job, or, you know, that's amazing that you did that. But I think it's important for us to remember that. Absolutely. I, I love that. And I think it is important to pause for just a second and nobody else is going to clap, but maybe clap for yourself right uh, here, here and there. <laughs> I'm clapping. Damn it. <laughs> is it okay well, that I cur- that I curse? Yes. Okay. Do it all. That's fine. <laughs> okay. We want you to be yourself. Totally. What advice would you give your younger self? I love these questions, y'all. So I don't know that I would want to give her advice. I think I would want to wrap her up and say, you're doing just fine. I'm proud of you. It's all going to be okay. Even the mistakes in quotes, and I believe in you. I think girls sometimes are often getting too much advice, like, you know, too much critique. And I think I would just want to tell her like, you're doing just fine. You make good choices. Like, and what I mean by that is like, not necessarily that it is always the good choice, but that it's okay to make mistakes and just keep going. Yeah. How powerful would that be to hear that as as a young girl? I I think that would resonate deeply. And it's interesting. We have a nine and 11 year old and we were just saying similar things to them today. It's okay to make mistakes. You have Mm -hmm. the ability to do this. You can do this. Right. It's a, a message that 
the kids need to hear constantly. It's so freeing. Yeah. Oh, so much. So I'm going to take us to talk about your credentials a little bit, which are vast and very impressive. So not only are you a licensed clinical mental health counselor supervisor and a certified eating disorder specialist supervisor, but you also have education in numerous different training techniques, which include one of which is animal assisted therapy. I thought that was so cool when I saw that. What specialties of your profession do you find most fulfilling? And was there something in your life that specifically led you on this particular career and life path? Yeah, I I am trained in a lot of techniques and approaches. I love doing anything related to trauma work with folks, anything that helps people feel more at home in their bodies, safer in their bodies, more connected to themselves, to others. You know, like at the moment, I would say I'm using a lot of brain spotting, which is a specific trauma, you know, approach. And I'm about to go get another training in that. But honestly, like the the trainings, they're all good, the techniques, but the most fulfilling thing is just being with a person and and seeing them just be so brave in, in exploring stuff that's really hard, that's really painful. And believing in themselves, like having belief in themselves that it can get better. Cause I think that's sometimes the hardest thing. Like someone who doesn't believe they can get better is not often the person that comes to counseling. A lot of times the folks we see, they have some glimmer, even if it's super small, that it can be better than it is right now. And I just think it's so neat to see that and to help build that and and help it get bigger. Like, yes. uh, And believing in themselves. So what led me to this path? So, I mean, you know, my dad was a guidance counselor for 43 years, a vocational counselor as part of that. My mom was a social worker and then a nurse. There was a lot of helpers in our family. So, you know, I think um, I was certainly influenced by that. I also grew up with, you know, there was some trauma and abuse and difficult things that, you know, I had to kind of work through and, and heal from. And so, experiencing those things also just, I think, I think a lot of therapists have their own stories of that kind of stuff. And so in part going and becoming a therapist helps you heal to some degree. It's not the only way to to work on your own healing, but, but learning about people and how people work. And, you know, as part of growing up, part of the trauma was also living and, and caring for people that had pretty significant mental health issues and not being able to help them and not being able to save them. And so, you know, there's a secondary gain of doing this work of feeling like I have agency and being able to help others. And I don't know, it's just an honor. Like it's being able to witness that process. But yeah, I mean, like I thought I wanted to be a pediatrician when I was a kid. I used to say that for years. I went to school as like bio pre-med that first semester. I like failed most of my classes. I had a two, three, three. I talk about that a lot with my college students because I think it's a really common thing for folks who skate through high school and are like, maybe they're gifted, maybe they're in honors classes and they don't have to work quite so hard. They get to school and it's a bigger pond and it's like sort of like this wake up call. And it certainly was for me. I got to college and I was like, this is so fun. And like, ah, and, but then I, what I realized through that process was like, I don't know that I want to go to med school. I think I just was thinking I was supposed to do that because that's what you're supposed to do when you are smart or whatever. And taking like intro to psych and intro to social and intro to poetry and intro to education, all these intro courses was so exciting. And I started loving that. Like, oh, maybe I don't want to do sciences. Maybe I don't want to be a doctor. Um, so I became a different kind of doctor. just not the one that can like help you if you're bleeding or something. <laughs> um, Isn't it so interesting that, <laughs> that we, they often 
ask people to go in telling people what their their major track is going to be what their their track is going to be Mm -hmm. exactly and these are kids that are like 18 17 18 years old and how can you decide what you want to do with the rest of your life at that age at that age they do it in middle school even like they they start tracking you know students in middle school which is yeah absurd so your main stuff interest right now is working with people with trauma that's Uh, what you enjoy the most yeah I, i would say so i mean my practice specializes in eating disorders and body image and, and trauma is a huge part of that. But, you know, we certainly see a lot of people with trauma who don't have disordered eating. They do often go hand in hand, even folks who don't have an eating disorder, the nature of trauma, you know, impacts your relationship with body, your food, your digestive, you know, processes and all that. So it's hard to, to separate them fully, but yeah. And, and before we move on, I think it's important for our listeners to just have this definition. You had mentioned brain spotting as mm. one of your specialties or your trainings. Would you be able to just briefly <clears throat> explain what that is? <laughs> yes. It's very weird y'all. Like, and I say that like, a, there's a lot of trauma protocols or techniques that, you know, you learn about and you learn the science behind it and it's like, okay, that makes sense. But then like the actual doing of it or experiencing it, it's like, this is so weird. How is this working? Like, it almost feels like magic and it's not magic, but there is like this quality of like, wow, like, you know, I've seen folks who, you know, um, had a phobia of driving, right? Because they had a, were in a car accident and then they were able to go through whether it was brain spotting or EMDR, other kinds of protocols. And now they're able to drive and not, you know, be um, re-traumatized every time they're behind the, the the driving wheel. So brain spotting is a brain-based, body-based trauma protocol that is really trying to help tap into your the subcortical part of the brain to help almost like rewire and heal uh, pathways, neural pathways that have kind of been stuck in a trauma loop, if that makes sense. So when we've had like a traumatic traumatic experience, we get certain neural pathway loops that get stuck on something, right? Like I hear the word, um, I'm trying to think, well, let's, let's go with the car accident example, right? Someone has had a really bad car accident. And so now because of that, it was so charged, it gets stored in your brain in a way that maybe every time you see a car, think of a car in a car, right? That neural loop gets activated and your brain is almost like re-experiencing that or re-experiencing the fear and your body can't necessarily tell the difference between it actually happening and the memory of it happening. And so um, these kind of techniques, brain spotting being one, helps the person be able to go back in a, a safe and organized way to be able to go back in and help sort of sort through that and help the person experience safety, reprocess it in a way that is not re-traumatizing so they don't have to have so much of a charge. It's not that you erase the memory, you can't do that, but it's almost like helping it become less of it's happening right now to me in this moment over and over again to, oh yeah, it's like I'm watching it up on a movie screen. It's, it's almost like a distant memory but it's not overwhelming my system in this moment. That's we'll fantastic. Yeah. I have been doing some EMDR therapy. Oh yeah. It has been phenomenal. I remember yeah, the first cool. time where there was a shift that happened and I was, I walked upstairs after therapy and I was like, this was mind blowing. <laughs> awesome. Um, well, yeah. and brain spotting was created by someone who was an EMDR therapist and he was doing EMDR and sort of discovered how to do the brain spotting. And so there, there's a lot of similarities across the two in terms of bilateral integration and uh, the process of, you know, rewiring. So, yeah. 
it's cool. It's very yeah. cool stuff. Yeah, cool. As a therapist with almost 20 years of experience, you have worked with a lot of individuals. Obviously, everybody's journey is unique, but we would love to know if you've noticed any overarching themes that repeatedly come up amongst your clients, specifically those that are mothers. And if yeah. so, why do you think those issues are so prevalent for moms? Yeah, I mean, I think anxiety is going to be the overarching one for for everyone. And, you know, um, anxiety isn't all bad. We all have anxiety. Anxiety is, you know, essentially our nervous system in a overactivated state. We don't want to have no anxiety. You know, I picture the guy from, uh, you know, Fast Times at Ridgemont High, the Sean Penn character, like, oh man, everything's cool, right? Like, like <laughs> you know, you need some anxiety to like perform, right? Like I was, I was a little anxious getting ready for this interview, um, but that adrenaline, it was a good amount of anxiety, right? We want it to be in a place where it's not like overwhelming our ability to function, right? I, everyone in the world deals with that. I think that's definitely an overarching theme. And together with that, like when we think about what's the core anxiety that we all have, we really keep stripping back. It gets back at what we call attachment needs. And so, you know, human beings, we are essentially social beings. We are hardwired for connection with others. We need each other. And those core experiences that often happen in childhood very early on, even just as like babies and toddlers, inform so much of our um, later relationships, our later, you know, sense of safety and connection and all that. So I would say that the biggest themes across anyone, but for sure with mothers, but those core, you know, experiences that happen at really critical developmental junctures inform so much of the rest of our lives. And so uh, I think we're all trying to figure out how to get back to connection with ourselves and how to get back to connection with others, right? Different things have gotten in the way of that. Different things have disrupted our connection. And so in, in so many different ways, we're just trying to get a sense of safety and connection with ourselves, with others, with the world. So specific to mothers, I think when you are mothering, whether it's a child or whether it's like your own biological child, whether it's um, or adopt a child, whatever, but whether it's also just like you're mothering someone else, right? I think we mother in a lot of different ways, not just through, you know, the typical way we think of mothering. We're often playing out some of those early core experiences, whether we are trying to offer what we weren't given, whether we are trying to, you know, like heal those attachment ruptures that we had, or whether we're trying to find connection in the ways that we didn't have. And, you know, something I, I see a lot with folks and talk a lot of folks really common around trauma is, when our child gets to an age or stage that is the same age or stage that we were when we had maybe a developmental trauma, it's very common for us to get activated around that. And a lot of times it's out of our awareness. So let's just say like someone was like assaulted when they were seven or something, right? And their child reaches that age. It's, it's a, this has been written about, it's a very common theme to happen where they may start having a lot of stuff come up for themselves and may not even be consciously aware that it's, it's happening because of that, but because their child now is at that age. And so, you know, if we think about trauma in a really broad umbrella way, there's a lot of different things that can come up, right? Now my child's five, now they're six. Like what were we experiencing at those ages? And how is that stuff getting kind of activated as we watch our kid move through life? being able to have an awareness to understand what we need at that time. Like, what did we need when we were that age? How can we take care of ourselves now? How can we access that care so that we're in a better position to remain separate enough 
to offer our child what they need at this stage, which might be different from what we needed. I'd say that's yeah. the, the most common thing. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I, as we speak to more experts and especially mental health experts, this awareness piece comes up frequently mm -hmm. and I am becoming more aware of things and I'm working on it and processing through things. But at the same time, I hear what all of you are saying <laughs> um, and, and I'm trying to incorporate it, but it also builds up an immense feeling mm. of pressure in me regarding mm -hmm. parenting my own child. Like, yes. How yes. am I screwing up my own kid totally. right now? Totally. Oh my gosh, yes. <laughs> yes, yeah. Well, and, and I hope that didn't sound like, yeah, like you need to be totally healed to be able to, I mean, mothers in like, I mean, I think about my, my Italian immigrant grandmother, like mothers do incredible jobs in poverty in, you know, war zones, you know, so this is not about getting to some sort of ethereal, like, I am so self-actualized and healed. And so now I can be the best mother, you know? Yeah, no, I think that pressure is a joke too. And I also think like you can be the quote best mom and your kid's still going to have whatever issues they're going to have, you know, like, and, and some of that's completely out of control. Um, that's something that, uh, you know, my, my partner is a therapist as well. And we're both therapists. This is the work we do. And we have a kid that has mental health difficulties. And for sure, there are times where I feel that like guilt of like, oh my gosh, we messed her up. It's our fault. And good friends have been able to remind me like Maria, like her genetics are what her genetics are. And, you know, there's only so much you can do. You're doing as much as you can. Right. So I do think what we're able to work on and heal in ourselves. And if we have the ability and access and energy and support and all that, like, yes, it's going to help our kids. It's a gift to our kids. I, I think about my mom going to counseling when I was a child and how much of a gift it was that she was doing that specifically for me. I, I have I'm the only daughter with four brothers. It was a gift to me that she worked through stuff. So when we can do that, yes. And we're also doing the best we fucking can, <laughs> you know? So like, I mean, our, and I, this sounds really crass y'all, but I have friends I say that we're like, yep, our kids are all going to have fucking issues. They're all going to be messed up and they're all going to be okay. Like there's only so much we can do. There's only so much we can do. <laughs> does that sound doom and gloom or does that sound hopeful? I'm not sure. Maybe. No, maybe it sounds, I'm so <laughs> glad you said that because that is something that I work through all the time is just how can I do parenting better so that I don't mess up my kids so that my kids aren't spending X amount of years in therapy. Well, in reality, everyone <laughs> should probably go yes. to therapy. No. So. And I can tell you having worked at private schools and, and worked in schools, you know, and, and populations that were impoverished, like we all have our issues, right? Like they, they have different flavors. There's, you know, different things that impact that, but I'm not saying like, put your hands up and do nothing, you know, but I also think the pressure specifically on moms, this idea, and you can see this in, in the mental health field historically, where even there were certain diagnoses that were rooted in the idea that the mother had been lacking, which I think is, you know, really harmful, right? Like autism and, um, you know, uh, a lot of the personality disorders, a lot of the ways they were described, you look at the old writings in, in the psychology field were defined as though like it was a lacking of, of good mothering. And, you know, I, I think that's really short-sighted to, to frame it in just that way. There's, there's much more that goes into it. And we're not the only ones that mother, you know, like, and, and that's obviously changing too. Like dad's mother, my, my kids coaches, mother them, you know, their teachers, mother them. And I love thinking about that too, of like my kids mothering is not just my job, if that makes sense. And I take comfort in that, that 
there are other people who are able to give them things I'm not, and that's a gift. And I want them to have that. And that's why that village is, is yes. so important. And as you were speaking, I definitely, it kept popping up in my head that it is through the struggles, and this is really regarding our children, through the struggles that they build strength and, and totally. build that, that resilience. Character. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we've talked about this a little bit. We've talked about how your work revolves around trauma, but one of the other areas that your work really revolves around is helping individuals through an eating disorder, which you yourself are in recovery for. And I want to say that you're not alone because I also am in therapy for orthorexia. And mm. I was curious and if you could share a bit about your own journey to recovery and in what this journey and recovery looks like for you? Yeah. And, you know, I use the language in recovery in a somewhat similar way to people use it, you know, in the addictions field. I don't see eating disorders through an addiction lens. I don't subscribe to that view, but in terms of the way of saying like, I'm in recovery from alcoholism, right. But it might be someone who's like sober 20 years. I'm not in an active eating disorder, right? Like the behaviors and the thought processes, you know, it's, it's been quite a, a bit of time since I've been in the like depth of that. But I use that language for a few different reasons. One, because I feel like our bodies are always changing. And it, so it's like an, it's an ever ongoing process, right? You know, you can heal your relationship with your body at a certain age and stage and, and then your body changes, right? Like you all know this through motherhood, through just life and aging through, you know, whatever. And so to some degree, I don't want to think I'm done. I've seen that with clients where they think, oh, I'm done. I'm recovered period. And it's over. And for some folks, what I find is when they really subscribe to that kind of black and white, sort of like all or nothing, I'm done. Unfortunately, often I see them being the ones who are often more vulnerable to it creeping back in at some point. You know, I don't think people need to be like ever vigilant, like, you know, paranoid, scared, like, oh gosh, like I have to watch everything. But at the same time, I think we need to be open that like we live in a culture where the pressures around bodies and thinness and restriction are so great and, and so pervasive that I think it's easy for that to creep back in for folks. And so that's a little bit of why I say that in that way. I know some, for some people, it can be confusing of like, does that mean that you're like, you know, actively, you know, having eating disorder right now? I'm not in like an active restrictive state or, you know, with behaviors, that kind of thing. But the other reason I say that is I think it can be a really privileged way of thinking to talk about recovery in a final way, you know, for a long time, what I would notice as a provider is the people who were in the field talking about being fully recovered were almost always thin, white, very privileged, cisgender women. And, you know, it got me to, to really think about like, what does that even mean? And, and, and Pope, folks almost using it as like a badge of honor. And what I would notice is the folks that were kind of left out of that equation were often people who had some sort of marginalized identity, whether they're a person of color or queer, transgender, you know, immigrant and, you know, recovery and especially like a final recovery, like I'm fully recovered is a really hard thing to access. If you don't have the same resources you know, and just ability. And if you're, and if you're experiencing ongoing oppression, so someone who's experiencing ongoing oppression, it's, you know, to some degree, some of the behaviors of their eating disorder may be some of the things that are keeping them safe in some really legitimate ways. And so I think it can be complicated to think about it in, in those binaries. I just think thinking about it in more 
expansive ways is helpful. I also have something called polycystic ovarian syndrome, PCOS, and it's something that is not going to go away and that impacts my health and my body and my relationship to food and all that. And so that also to some degree makes it difficult to really think about recovered, not recovered, you know? So I work closely with dietitians as colleagues. I also am seeing a dietitian myself right now. I'm doing some medical nutrition therapy around my PCOS symptoms around, you know, chronic fatigue and all that. So I like to, again, just think about it more expansively, if that makes sense. You had a second part of that question. So what does it look like for me? I mean, all that to say though, I'm in a very good place, right? I don't have those active struggles in the same kind of way as I did. I don't think I could do the work that I'm doing if I was in that kind of active place. And so, you know, being a therapist in this field, it certainly helps in some ways. It's almost a way of continuing to do the work because I'm doing it with others and trying to help people access that same kind of recovery and space. You, you mentioned in your questions, I think earlier, like, you know, do, is it triggering for me? At this point, not really. And, and that's partly having done this for so long, having gotten so much training and clinical supervision and all that kind of stuff. Like, it's not that things aren't at times triggering in some way, whether we're talking about eating disorder work or other things, but it's also one of the things that you learn, you get trained in and learn to do to, to be able to have enough space where someone struggling with something isn't this big trigger for you. Again, though, that you know, someone who's like brand new in recovery might, might have a harder time with that. So yeah, I hope that answers that. Yeah. You actually uh, took my job away from me because I did have that follow-up question. Oh, sorry. Sorry. No, that was, that worked great. I, I was very curious to find out if there was anything that was triggering for you, whether it be with your clients or whether it be on social media or just in regular living. Yeah. I mean, and I said that and now I'm like, well, you know, my being like, there are things, of course there's triggers, you know, I, I don't, I think, I don't think I think about the triggers in the same kind of way as for someone who maybe is um, really, really struggling. Like, so for example, you know, I still have doctors who will, you know, tell me I have to lose weight. That That's not fun to hear. It doesn't spiral me in the same ways that it might've, you know, 10, 20 years ago, but even recently there's a, a surgery that I need and my insurance is denying it based on my BMI and which is bogus. There's no evidence for that as a good rationale to deny coverage for me to get to a BMI that is that much smaller would not be healthy for me. It would be really unhealthy for me. So there, I think that's what I mean earlier too, of saying like in recovery, there are triggers everywhere. Like our health system is triggering, right? Like going in the grocery aisle and there being 20 magazines that are talking about, you know, losing weight or getting your post pregnant body back. It'd be hard for anyone, unless you're a robot, you know, to, to not be impacted by that or annoyed by that as a mother of of three girls that, you know, it scares me like what they're growing up and what they're seeing in terms of that. It doesn't trigger me in the way of it spirals me back into using behaviors or into a, like an active eating disorder, if that makes sense. But it, it certainly sometimes shakes me and feels frustrating or like, oh, gosh, like why, why can't I get this covered? And my peer who needs the same surgery can get it covered just because our body size is different and not for any good health. Like there's not like a structural functional reason. There's no evidence that like doing the surgery on me would be you know, not indicated as compared to that person who's smaller than me. That's right. This is totally a rhetorical question, but yeah. when are they going to get rid of BMI? I, I, mean, <laughs> I mean, come on. <laughs> I mean, yeah, I know it's, it's not a good measure. Uh, I, I know you guys have had Lisa Folden and Anna Lutz on and all that. And so I'm sure maybe they've talked about it, but it, you know, if people haven't listened to their episodes or heard their work, their, their stuff is so great. 
But yeah, BMI is, it's not a good measure. It was created by like the mathematician and based on men, it wasn't ever meant as a measure of health. It was changed in the nineties from one day to the next by a group of quote experts that when you look at their affiliations, they were all affiliated with pharmaceutical and insurance companies. They had a vested interest in moving the BMI to make it so that more people would be considered unwell. Uh, it's not a good measure of health and um, weight is really not a good measure of health. Does it give us information? It does. And, and when your weight changes that that's, it's a data point, but it doesn't give the amount of information that diet culture would have you believe. This episode is sponsored by Her Circle, the supportive and welcoming community for moms created by Her Health Collective. Her Circle is a welcoming and supportive community for moms who are passionate about making change for themselves, their families, the community, and the world. Together, this village of women are revolutionizing the way moms take care of themselves. From an active, private online community and the incredible daily chats hosted there, to our many virtual gatherings, including support groups, Moms Night Out, volunteer opportunities, book club, family adventures, coffee chats, and so much more. We love providing moms the chance to connect and create authentic relationships with one another. The network of experts in her circle are a phenomenal resource and provide great learning experiences for moms on topics ranging from women's health to parenting. We cover the issues that matter to moms the most, from virtual expert Q&As to one-on-one wellness minute consultations and support groups. We are committed to getting moms in front of the information, experts, and support they need most. To learn more about Her Circle, head to www.herhealthcollective.com slash her-circle. We have a limited number of spaces and the doors only open a few times a year. So be sure to add your name to the no obligation waitlist so you are the first to know when the doors officially reopen. Absolutely. And I feel that we're starting to see a shift, but it's yeah. going gonna, to be a, a long time before I think that whole piece of the system yes. crumbles. Yes. Anna and I, we've had now doctors join our supervision group and like I'm having more medical providers like seek out training and that's exciting. That's fantastic. As we've already discussed, there's a variety of client issues and concerns that you help people work through to become more peaceful and connected with themselves. An issue you commonly work with clients on is trauma. In 2020, you experienced your own traumatic experience when you were the target of a public misrepresentation campaign. Being publicly named resulted in harsh backlash from many of your supporters. We have found that community often holds experts up on a pedestal where they're deemed as not having their own struggles. And I think this is even more apparent in today's world with things like social media. You are also subjected to cancel culture. This is a clear example of you having to work through your own trauma. What steps did you take to heal yourself? And I imagine are still taking to, yeah. to heal yourself. Yeah, it, it's ongoing and it's really hard. And I, I love how you said that of like, you know, we hold experts on a pedestal. And I think that happens, uh, especially for someone who's female or socialized as female. And, and there's research that even shows the supports that even like 
and this is specific, but like um, evaluation uh, after a course, you know, like in, in college or grad school, research that's done on that, um, and they've done like double blind studies and all that, when the professor is a female or student thinks the professor is a female, they get harsher feedback. They get more criticism and they get more personal and mean-spirited feedback, right? You know, and you see the same thing in so many arenas, I think in politics, and this goes across both aisles, right? Like we could look at, you know, whether Republican or Democrat, Sarah Palin or Hillary Clinton or whatever, you know, um, the comments about what they're wearing or how much they're smiling or not smiling, how coiffed their hair is, right? It, does, it becomes less about their views and, and their qualifications and their experience and more about like, are they matching and meeting what expectation we have of females, right? And so I've seen this with a lot of folks now. And yes, I feel like that was part of it. It, uh, it felt like that was part of it. I think the bigger a woman gets, whether we're talking literally or figuratively, you know, or, you know, like success wise or whatever, the more she becomes a target right? Because she's going against what society has established as like how much space we're supposed to take up. That makes sense, right? Um, And so it's almost like this unspoken agreement that people get into and sometimes mobs of people get into of like, oh, we need to take her down a notch, you know, like she's she's getting too big for her britches, right? And I've seen this happen to folks in in some really devastating ways. And, And what I went through was really profoundly traumatic and damaging to my business and to my professional relationships and to my mental health and my family's, you know, wellness and all that and to people who work for me. And it, you know, it was really hard. And it also like sort of took the veil off, which is a kind of a heartbreaking thing to see like, wow, like how people, like how far this can go and, and, how people good in quote, good people can participate in this kind of stuff. It made me think back and look at like, what are the ways in which I've done this? What are the ways in which I've treated someone like this, especially other women, you know? Um, And I can think of examples. I can think of times when I have, I'm thinking of a silly example of uh, someone in, I went to grad school with who was, is a wonderful person, is a very talented therapist and um, does a lot of good, you know, was a very tall, svelte, you know, um, attractive person who was a really great sensual dancer. And I can remember being at a conference and this is like silly and small, but I can remember you know, sort of a group of classmates, like, who does she think she is? You know, (laughs) like, and I look back at that and I'm like, man, like, you know, you're you're asking like, what advice would you give to your younger self? I'd say like, stop being such a bitch, (laughs) you know, like how wonderful that she was like at home in her body and that she was at home with her sexuality and sensuality. But I I think we see that same kind of theme and, and interaction or, you know, happen in so many places to where I have seen people who are so talented, and I'm specifically talking about some women, so talented, who I've seen make decisions, some who saw what happened to me or went through some similar things that happened to me, make decisions to like censor themselves and to like not be as public or not be as vocal about certain things because they're afraid of being targeted. And, um, and it makes me sad. I'm like, geez, the fear is so great that people are self-censoring and, you know, I'm not talking about self-censoring, like, you know, bad stuff. I mean, like holding themselves back from sharing their talents and their wisdom and their insights with the world. 
And that makes me really sad. I hope that as we keep moving, because I think I think the sh- something shifting with people understanding how dangerous these kinds of things can be, these kind of public misrepresentation campaigns and these, whether you want to call it cancel culture or other stuff, like I think more people are understanding what negative impacts can come, how can it, how it can be a suicide risk, how it can be just super damaging and often based in no truth. And that more people are realizing, oh, we, we got to slow down. We got to take a breath. We've got to understand that this click or this like, or this comment or this participation, even small sometimes really can have dramatic impacts and, and maybe it's not worth it. Maybe I need to go write in my diary <laughs> or punch my pillow instead of like, quote, punching someone on the internet. Yeah, absolutely. You shared so many insightful little nuggets of wisdom there. And I just want to also applaud you for sharing what you've been going through in a public way so that other people can learn about how this is harmful and how this does impact people. Thank you. It's not always easy. And, and sometimes I go like, I many times have thought I'm I'm just going to delete my page, especially early on when stuff was happening. It's hard because I, I run a business. I have people who depend on me and depend on my ability to market. You know, there's 10 people at my practice and, you know, it was almost like this stuck position too, of like, I can't just let this narrative sit, you know, I have to speak up, but doing that draws even more ire from some folks and criticism. And it's hard, you know, it's hard when you're receiving messages and lies about you and lies about your work. And I'm really proud of the work I do. I'm really proud of what I've built. I say that in as humble a way as I can say that. Like what I mean by that is like, I think that's something I've seen too, where like when a woman's proud of her work or like speaks up, it's like, she really needs to be more humble. Like it's okay for us to have an ego, you know, it's, it's okay to check that. And I think you know, I, I, um, I try to do a lot of work on that and check like, oof, where am I going wrong? How have I done something? What do I need to repair? But I'm really proud of what I've built and the work I've done and speaking up almost, it almost became like, I didn't have a choice. It felt like I have to speak up. I have to start telling my story because otherwise other people are telling it for me and they're telling a false story. They're telling a false narrative. My, my New York just came out fools. <laughs> I'm from New York originally. They're telling a false narrative. And so I have to start telling my own. And, and I think that's a, that's something I'm seeing with a lot of folks, like even outside of social media, like, you know, when folks are afraid of like how they're doing in certain arenas or friendships or work, like don't let someone else tell your narrative, right? The, the only person who knows your narrative so intimately and so accurately is you. And people for eons have wanted to tell the female story. I mean, think about it even like, how many stories about women were written by men, right? Finally, the the film industry is getting like, oh, we need female writers to really more accurately understand what the narrative and what the perspective is of the female. People have been trying to tell our stories in so many ways for so long. And, you know, so I would encourage people like, you know, take back your own narrative. No one else can tell it for you. I love that. That's so beautiful. There's a lot of female empowerment right there happening. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, it's hard to follow that up. Oh, all right. We're done. No, I'm just, okay. (laughs) (laughs) No, that means I have to go back and be with my kids. Oh no. It's been a long week. It's been a long week. (laughs) Yes. Yes. Oh, her health collective. We have four initiatives that 
we like to bring in awareness too because we have seen how they impact the health and well being of moms. Many of the initiatives in our discussion we have inadvertently talked about, and that includes perinatal mood and anxiety disorders. We touched on that very briefly. We talked about diet culture and body appreciation. We've also talked a little bit about goddess myth and managing the expectations of motherhood in terms of, you know, this last question that we had just talked about, about not letting others define you and being confident in your abilities, et cetera. The fourth initiative we'd like to ask you directly about, and it is in regard to equal access to maternal care. How have you seen the lack of equity in the care mothers receive play out in your particular industry? And this is always so interesting. I can't wait to hear what you say, but do you have ideas on how to change this dilemma mm-hmm. coming from the mental health perspective? Because yes, that's your, that's your area of expertise. I do, I wanna say that to some degree, mothers are accessing therapy more than fathers, right? Like I would love to see more men and more fathers access therapy and healing. I think that would help this equation, if that made sense. Like, because in some ways I haven't seen it as a huge struggle that mothers are accessing therapy. And and I, I say that like in very general terms, there's absolutely access issues. There's absolutely particularly for, for, for folks who are living in poverty and, and or don't have insurance, you know, all that kind of stuff. But, and somewhat like we were talking about earlier, sometimes I think there's this pressure like on the mother, like, oh, you go to therapy, you be the one to work on your issues. You get better when there's like other players who in the equation who really are the ones who maybe sometimes need more of the mental health treatment. Yes. And that would actually maybe if they got that would maybe make it easier for the mother and maybe lessen her mental health struggles, if that makes sense. So mm-hmm. in terms of equity, like I would actually love to see more men access that. And, and I say that not as a criticism of men. I think it's really hard for men to access it because of the way that they're often socialized. And obviously we're talking in these kind of generalized socialized terms, like, you know, I, I don't want to leave out folks who are non-binary or trans or whatnot. Like there's still a disproportionate level of use of therapy. And I think all of us could benefit if more men or folks who are socialized as men could go and access therapy. I think it would help them specifically, but also help all of us. And I say that as growing up with four brothers, you know, I lived with the guy's soccer team in college for a little bit. Like I've, I have spent a lot of time around men and it's hard to talk about your feelings. It's hard to be vulnerable. And, um, you know, uh, my, my partner, my husband, and I talk about this a lot. He's a therapist. It's still hard sometimes for him to go to therapy, you know, and, and he knows like he, you know, he does this work. So I think that would make such a tremendous difference if we were able to get more men accessing that kind of mental health wellness. Do I have ideas? Y'all, if insurance would actually pay providers enough that would enable them to stay on insurance panels, that would make it a lot easier for therapists to do that. You know, it's hard running a business and making enough based on how sometimes how hard the insurance companies make it. So that's largely out of my control, but you know, some of these things are, are, are big things, right? Like if insurance valued mental health in the same ways that they valued other things that they cover so easily, it would enable more people to be able to access that care. But to some degree, it's still 
relatively hard to get mental health coverage as compared to other kinds of health. You want to join a, a weight loss thing, it's much easier to get coverage for some of those kind of programs than sometimes it is to get coverage of mental health care. So I think that would make a big difference too. That's so interesting that you say that, you say that uh, mainly because it, it makes you think about how men have societal pressure as well, that oh, yeah. they can't show their feelings and, oh, don't cry. Men don't cry. And, you know, it's also coming off of generational dysfunction as well. Mm -hmm. So you think about, gosh, I was raised in the 80s, 90s era, and it was more the structure of fear-based parenting, right? Like what your parents said goes. And now we're kind of going more into attachment parenting and, you know, right. transformational parenting, all of that. And so hopefully we'll see men start to feel more comfortable expressing themselves. And maybe we will see that shift eventually. And, and I do think it's shifting, right? Like, um, and this is maybe, I don't know if it's a silly or not silly example, but I just saw an article like more men are wearing nail polish, you know, it's <laughs> great. Like, I mean, I think gender roles are changing and, and becoming more expansive. Our understanding of gender is becoming more expansive. Our tolerance of expansive gender is becoming more, it's becoming greater, you know, just across people. And I think that's all a good thing, right? Like that we don't have to stay in these defined roles or defined spaces, there's still a lot of work to be done. And I think, you know, we don't want to, while we do that, we don't want to lose sight of like how, you know, some genders are, you know, uh, experiencing more difficulty and more barriers than others. Right. So, but yeah, we all, we all need more, you know, I mean, like, I, I do think men need more too, in whatever ways, like it, they're, they're not robots either. And I think men are struggling often um, just as much as women, it just looks different. And this to me also gets it back at like this idea of connection and needing each other that it, it all works together, right? We're all cogs in the same system. And so um, we can't just work on, you know, women or making it better and not work on making it better for everyone. It's, it's all going to work together. It made me think of the movie, A League of Their Own, when Tom Hanks yeah. goes, there's no crying in baseball. <laughs> yeah, I love that. <laughs> it was a good movie. Yes. It is. It's a classic. Yeah. Okay. I'm very, very excited for this next question. You've said, I, I don't remember if this was on your website or Instagram or where, where I found this, but somewhere you said, sometimes I want to grab my kiddos and throw them in a great big plastic bubble to protect them from how harsh the world can be. Heck, sometimes I want to throw myself in that same bubble to hide from it all. I think a lot of us feel this way to some degree as someone with anxiety. I often feel this on a very visceral level. How do you move past this? How, when the world feels overwhelming, when we see our children getting hurt, when we can't fathom a much larger scale, when we can't fathom the pain out there in the world, what do we do? What, what do you do? <laughs> uh, I'm laughing. Give us all your answers. I, <laughs> you I also want to tell me today. So, can you give me that answer? Um, I'm also giggling because um, I always picture, I don't know if you guys saw this movie. It was, it was before I was born, but I do remember seeing it. Uh, it was like John Travolta, the boy in the plastic bubble. Do, do you guys I've remember I've heard that? of it, but I don't, I don't think yeah. I've seen it. Anyway, that's what I always picture with that. Like, Gosh, even just this week, one of my kiddos, you know, she's at that age where there's like sort of the quote girl drama, you know, like in relationships and, you know, a group of three and there's always like 
like two who are whatever and the other one's left out and it switches and you know she said to me last night mom like I just want my I just want books to be my best friend like friends are just too hard like you know like I you know they're just too confusing and so yes like I think about that bubble and crave it sometimes but I also want them to grow resilience for living in this world right like this is the world they're living in and that's where i think too like um even when you mentioned triggers earlier i think there's been like a push in some realms of therapy to almost teach people to avoid triggers at all costs right like you know and like because then you, you might get re-traumatized or whatever and and there's definitely some utility to that right like to understand what are some things because of where i'm in in my healing process that it's good to stay away from right like if you're an alcoholic maybe it's not the time to go to a bar you know on a friday night you know like depending where you are in recovery you know maybe at a different point you'll be able to maybe never right so knowing your triggers can be really helpful at the same time I have felt to some degree, some places it's, it's gotten taken too far, right. Where it's almost like, you know, I can't see this, a person, I'm going to make a real, a person with long hair, this is just totally random because that triggers me and reminds me of whatever. And I can't, and it's like, Whoa, you know, like as a therapist, I think about helping my clients live in the world they're in, which is surrounded with triggers. Right. Think about this, especially for people of color, people who are facing oppression, right? Like we can't, make the world triggerless, right? We can maybe have this ideal that we work toward, you know, but for some people, that's really a luxury to, to escape interacting or facing any kind of triggers. And so back to my kids, I think about that with them of, I want them to have resiliency and grit to be able to face the world they're in, which sometimes means facing difficulties and sometimes means they're going to be anxious and trying to help them. I'm sure you guys have heard the terms like lawnmower parent or, you know, there's helicopter parent, but now there's lawnmower parent where like, you know, so helicopters, like they're hovering, right? Lawnmower is they're clearing the way in front of their kid. Right. So I haven't heard that one. <laughs> yeah. That yeah. And, you know, and like, I, I think we as parents, to some degree, we're all doing that. Like we it's, it's kind of the world we're in, like, it's hard not to. Right. And I've thought about like, how do I help them fail? Like, how do I help them learn to fail and experience failure and experience heartache and get through it? And through that, build resilience to face the next thing and build resilience to face the next thing, right? And then experience resilience for when I'm not there because I can't be there all the time, right? And I want them to be able to live in the world and function no matter what comes their way, right? So when we see our children get hurt, when the world feels overwhelming, like I mean, I am dealing with something right now that this, like I said, is hard this week. And sometimes I just want to go cry. Sometimes I do. I, I called my mom and cried this morning before this interview, actually, not, not because of the interview, but because of stuff. And I mean, sometimes I think we do need to just do that. And then for myself, I think, okay, now I'm going to pull up my big girl panties and I'm going to keep going. Right. Cause that's what we got to do. So I think it depends. And this even makes me think if you guys have heard of that term, radical acceptance, which is a therapy term like it's sort of like both and right. Like some things are really, really, really hard and life is worth living. Right. Like we use this a lot with people who are chronically suicidal folks who um, have had complex trauma, like some things about life. I mean, some of my clients, they've had tremendous, you know, sexual childhood abuse or trauma of some sort, whatever. Right. Some things are really, really shitty. Life is hard and it's still worth living. How do we find hope? How do we find resilience? How do we keep going even in the face of tremendously difficult things. And I think about that for my kids. I don't want to build them a bubble. I want to build them 
resilience and courage to keep going, right? Hope that things can get better and they will get better. You have to keep going. Sometimes I feel like I get preachy on these podcasts, y'all. I hope I don't no, sound like You know, <laughs> I actually was popping in and I was going to be like, all right, now tell us how to do that. <laughs> well, but I don't know if we have time for that. So you might have to come back. <laughs> well, I mean, I don't, what do you guys think? I, you know, like, I, I don't know how we do it. I think you just, sometimes it's just one step at a time, right? Like sometimes it's fake it till you make it. Sometimes, sometimes it's making your bed when you don't want to make your bed. Sometimes it's not making your bed and just saying it's going to be okay because the bed's not made, right? Like, I think it's, I think it's all of the, the above. And that has been something that I've been so inspired by my mother friends and motherhood is, seeing moms keep going, even when things are so hard, seeing moms go through this pandemic and figure it out and do things that they didn't think was possible before. There's a Tina, no, not, is it Tina Faye? There's a Tina Faye quote, I think, where she was talking about like being a working mom or something like that. And I think this can apply to stay at home moms, working moms, whatever, dads, whatever. But it was like, you get to these points, I'm paraphrasing, you get to these points where you think, I can't do this. I can't do this. I can't do this. And then you just do it. Right. And to me, that's like motherhood. Like, you know, you, sometimes you just find a way. And I, I don't want that to sound like just pull up your bootstraps and do it. Right. Like sometimes it's really hard. I think, you know, if you're at a point where you don't feel like you can do that, please reach out, ask for help. This past year with the, the trauma that I did experience, I had friends who came and cleaned my kitchen. I, you know, I had friends who, you know, I mean, just lifted me up when I could not. And, you know, I don't think there's anything weak or bad about that when you need to ask for help. And to me, that is part of the keeping on going, you know, asking for help, receiving help, letting other people do things sometimes for you is to me, part of that whole, like keeping on going, you know? And I think the powerful thing in all of that too, is that your children are always watching. They are seeing you move through a struggle, move through challenges, move through, Mm -hmm. if, if they can see you make a mistake and work through it. There's a lot of power in that. It, Absolutely. It's come up several times today about the importance of struggle and mistakes. And I think that if we can embrace that for ourselves and then not be the lawnmower parent and move everything out of the way for our children, but let them have the opportunity mm-hmm. to, to struggle and make mistakes too, and just be yeah. there with them through that. I love it's that. Yeah, so totally. Yeah. I have so much more to talk to you about but we'll have to invite you back. Anyway, yay, it's time for our short and sweet final five. (laughs) All right, these are short and sweet. So we just want to know the answer to these questions. What are you reading or watching right now? I am watching The Mandalorian, which is like a Star Wars series thing. I'm not like a huge Star Wars geek, but I do enjoy the movies. And I just finished Nine Perfect Strangers, which is really good too. Um, Ironically, we were talking about Star Wars with our kids today, but go on, go on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I'm enjoying it. It's good. I have, like, I am one of those that has like 10 books going at the same time, y'all. Like literally, yes, like so many. You're in good company There's like three or four in my Audible. I have like four in my book stand. I've got, you know, whatever. So, and some I reread or, you know, some are reading first first time. So I'm actually reading Crime and Punishment. And then I'm not going to list all the books, but like, a bunch of trauma books, the book called So You've Been Publicly Shamed, and then Obama's A Promised Land on Audible, which has been fun. It's a good book. Oh, wow. I'd love to. Yeah. Okay. Does he read that? Side note? He reads it. And I love that when I like, uh, and I count Audible books as reading. I know some people say it's not reading, but if I have listened to a book on Audible, I will say I read the book. And I think that counts. Yes. (laughs) All right. Does your family have a motto, spoken or unspoken? 
you know, I don't know that we have, like, I, I feel like we do have things we said, but I couldn't think of a single one. Like, I, I know that we're often talking about, like, we're a team or, you know, we always come back together. We have each other's backs. Like, you know, that, that's something that you always can come back. You're, you're always welcome back is, is something I think we try to try to think about. That's sweet. What's something new happening in your life right now? We didn't really say if this should something. be good or bad. So yeah. whatever you want to um, share. It's January, right? Well, I'm, I'm getting ready to do the Shamrock marathon in on St. Patty's Day or St. Patty's weekend Yay. or something like that, which is fun. In Greensboro? Excited about that. No, it's in Virginia Beach, which I knew everyone wears green is my understanding. And so I'm hoping to do that. That's fun and exciting. I, I love first that. one. No, I've done I've done several, but it's the first one in a long time. So it's the first one like without having a kid who's like in diapers or nursing or whatever. And I say that because the last one that I trained for two weeks before the race, I, I had to make the decision to not do it because I had gotten sick for the third time. I had had like a sinus infection, then a strep throat, then a something else. And it, it felt like my body was going no. Mm -hmm. And at the time I had a kid who was still nursing, getting ear infections. And I was really proud of myself. Talk about like being in recovery. That is something that when I was knee deep in my eating disorder, I would have just kept going. Right. And so to me, that was like a really good recovery minded decision of like, my body's telling me that I need to not do this, even though I'm like ready for it, trained for it and all that. So that's yeah. fantastic. Yeah. That's, that, that's good for our listeners to hear. Yeah. What is your favorite thing about being a mother? I've met some of my closest friends being a mother. And that is a surprise that I don't think I anticipated. Like, you know, mothers of other of the, my kids' friends or, or some of them, they're not even friends anymore, but the moms and I are like, we're friends though. Our kids don't need to be friends anymore. We're just going to stay friends. And that's, that's, that's great. Yeah. I didn't yeah. even think about that. You just made me think of something. Yeah. Look, yeah. look at things, yeah. something and think yeah. of it differently. That, that's I awesome. feel like I probably should be saying like, I love their hugs. I mean, all that, all the above, I love all that stuff too. And, you know, like, it's just so fun being part of it, but yes, it's nice to also have those friends. Okay. And our final short and sweet question, what message do you think every mom should hear? It's going to be okay. Like all of it. Like, I mean that in like the deepest sense. I don't, you know, like in almost like a cosmic, like, you know, like we are stardust, you know, like the universe is going to keep going. Our kids are going to keep like, it's going to be okay. And so just breathe and be gentle with yourself. Do the next thing you need to do, whether it's putting on your shoes or whatever, it's going to be okay. Step by step. Yeah, there you go. This has been so fun. Thank it's you so much for having me. You. Yes. Oh my gosh. Yeah. And you will be around quite a bit this next year because you are on our panel of experts, you and your, your entire team. So we will be working closer with you and your staff. And we're just thrilled to have you. Well, we are honored. And yeah, thank you so much. I love the work you guys do. Thank you so much. Dr. Paredes is so much fun to talk to. I love that she always keeps it real and is willing to tackle the tough subjects. Here are our top three takeaways from our conversation today. One, we all have anxiety to some degree. It's a normal part of life. Some anxiety is even good. It's when it starts to impact our day-to-day -day functioning that it becomes problematic. When we think about the core anxiety that we all have, it often comes down to attachment needs. Humans are social creatures. We are hardwired for connection. We need each other. 
It is core experiences that happen very early on in our childhood that informs so much of our adult relationships. In a way, we're all trying to get back to a connection with ourselves and others. Over time, different things have disrupted that connection and we often replay some of those early experiences, whether it's by offering what we were not given, healing attachment ruptures, finding connections in ways we didn't have it. As parents, it's very easy for us to be activated by the age and stage of our children. So as parents, it's important to practice grace with ourselves as we navigate these situations. Two, we talked about this multiple times during our conversation with Dr. Paredes, the importance of making mistakes, learning from them, working through the struggle, and then keep going. We discuss this in the sense of our own mental health, that we need to do what we need to do, especially as mothers. This is one of the greatest strengths of mothers, doing what needs to be done for our family, but then also for our children. We need to let our children see us struggle and work through it. Simultaneously, we need to let our children struggle through their own stuff. Strength, compassion, perseverance are all qualities that develop through the struggle. Dr. Paredes mentions the lawnmower parent, and I believe this will be a very common parenting term mentioned for our generation of parents in particular. So many mothers I know, and I am very much included in this generalization, wind up trying to clear the way for our kids. It's hard to see them struggle. We don't want them to hurt. And yet this is likely what will cause the most harm for our children down the line. Three, in a world of social media where our lives are often publicized for the world to see and sometimes even judge, social comparison has become a damaging new norm. Many people can become fearful and anxious about how they appear to be doing in certain arenas, whether that's work, parenting, relationships, your home life. To this, Dr. Paredes said, don't let someone else tell your narrative. The only person who knows your narrative so intimately and accurately is you. I think it's important to note here that you can tell your narrative wherever and however you want. If that's on social media, great. But don't let the fear of judgment or overthinking how you will appear to others dictate what it is you share. Share that picture without the filter. And if you choose not to share to social media, A, good for you, but B, this same sentiment still matters. It doesn't matter how a parent or in-law, a friend or a neighbor views your life. It's your life. It's your story. You choose what will be shared and how and with whom. You only get one life. Nobody else should get a say in what path your life takes or how you choose to share your story with the world. Hi, bye friends. We've enjoyed hanging out with you. Follow us so you're the first to know when we drop a new episode. If you enjoyed your time with us, let us know by leaving a review. We always love hearing from you. Until next time, stay true to you.